This is the Safety of Work podcast, episode three. The question for this episode is, how do you know if your safety team is a positive influence on your safety climate? Hey everybody, my name is Drew Ray and I'm here with David Proven. We're from the Safety Science Innovation Lab at Griffith University in Australia. Welcome to the Safety of Work podcast. If this is your first time listening, the podcast is produced every week and the show notes can be found at safetyofwork.com. In each episode, we ask an important question in relation to the safety of work or the work of safety and examine the evidence surrounding it. David, what's today's question? So Drew, today's question is, how do you know if your safety team is a positive influence on your safety climate? And as safety professionals, we, we often talk a lot about the role that leaders play in shaping safety climate. But I think when we looked at this episode, we rarely talk about what impact that we personally have as safety practitioners on the safety climate within our organisation. So therefore, we, we actually don't know very much. Um, there's less than a handful of studies that I'm aware of that's really tried to explore this relationship between safety professionals and organisational safety climate. However, I think we would all agree that there should be some sort of impact you would expect that the safety team and the safety practitioners would be impacting the organisational safety climate and it would be really useful for us to know how that happens. That's something that I know about from personal experience as a safety worker, but it's not something that crops up a lot in the research. And most of the examples I know of are pretty bad. There's one organisation that's going to remain nameless because we're on a public podcast where they decided that safety climate was really important. They'd learned about it. They knew that it mattered. So their solution was they produced this glossy booklet called What is Safety Climate? And gave it out to all of their staff as if, you know, explaining what safety climate was would somehow magically create a better safety climate. Even more cynically, I think safety climate is a tool that safety consultants use to help safety professionals look good. They come along, they measure the organisation, they do something to help out, they measure again, and the measurements almost always go up because that's what safety climate does. And so people then say, look how good we are. But I do think that you know, putting the measurement aside, and if you treat like measuring safety climate as a separate thing to managing safety climate, then safety climate is something that matters. And it's something that safety professionals have a real and important role in looking after. We just don't know very much about it. What we've got is a lot of practical experience, some red flags of what to do or not do, but it's all based on personal experience. And so I'm glad that in this episode, we're looking at a sincere effort to look at and improve how a safety team is acting and interacting. I've got some concerns about the paper that you picked, David, uh, but it's a rare example of at least taking seriously the idea that safety influence isn't just about doing risk analysis or cheerleading for safety, that it comes from improving the way your safety team interacts with the rest of the organisation. Yeah, thanks, um, Drew. I'm looking forward to, um, to your thoughts on, on the way that the research was, was conducted. But today what we, we will do is we will overview a research paper uh, titled Improving Safety Culture Through the Health and Safety Organisation, a Case Study. So this research was conducted over a number of years, around 2011, 2012, by Kent Nielsen in Denmark. And it was published in 2014 in the Journal of Safety Research. Dr. Kent Nielsen, he's a, has a PhD in psychology, 
At the time of the study, he was the deputy head of occupational medicine at a regional hospital in Denmark. And he self-describes himself as actively engaged in safety intervention research, which from my perspective is really great to hear a, a fellow researcher that's really aiming to understand and create and learn from intentional change projects within organizations and, and then provide the outcomes of that, of that work in, in the public space. Yeah, when I looked at the other papers that Dr. Nielsen's produced, he's basically basing his whole work around trying to evaluate interventions in real organizations rather than just producing research papers that tell people what to do. That's not easy research. And sometimes you can think about what would be the ideal way to do that as a researcher. And that gives way to practical considerations. You, what sort of companies are companies going to let you have? What sort of data will they let you collect? And for that reason, a lot of researchers just shy away from it as too hard, or at least too hard to do well. So in the opening sentence of his paper, Nielsen points out that there's a real lack of culture change intervention studies. So what he means is there's lack of projects where they do a baseline measurement, they then target a specific change, and then they measure afterwards. And you'd think this is the easiest type of intervention study to do, and that there'd be lots of them, particularly given how much we've talked about the importance of safety climate and safety culture for you know, at least 30 years. But that's not really the case. There's surprisingly little of this work done. Um, the study uses safety climate as its main measure. So it, it called itself about safety culture. It measures safety climate. We're not going to get into the difference in relationship between the two here. Or, yeah, we might never finish the podcast. So let, let's just assume for the moment that they're closely related. So Nielsen outlined that historical safety climate research, and, and he did as part of his literature review going back to Zohar in the 1990s, has, has heavily linked safety climate to supervisory practices. And I think we have this general assumption in, in our organisations that climate, safety climate and safety climate change is leader-led. So, so we, we, we heavily rely on and almost solely rely on line managers in the organisation to influence, create change and affect the, the organizational safety climate. But Ken, Ken understood the, the, I suppose, the social psychology literature a little bit more broadly and, and understood that climate was not just about supervisors and, and workers or managers and workers, but safety climate was about interaction between everyone in the organization. And therefore, he, he formed the hypothesis that the safety team should be able to have a, a somewhat direct and, and measurable impact on the organizational safety climate. And, and this makes sense because we know that the safety team in an organization has, has some assumed or inherent power and influence over the way the organization thinks about and, and understands and, and manages safety. And so we, this study then becomes really important to us to try to understand how the way that the safety team behaves and, and interacts with others in the organizations has an impact on safety climate and I suppose therefore indirectly safety outcomes in the in the organization. So but before we get to the design and findings of the research, what this um this immediately raised a point for me, uh, I suppose when I when I read it and why I was really keen to talk about this is because like I said in the introduction, we do spend so much time thinking about what others need to do to shape safety in the organization that I thought this was a great opportunity for us to think about yeah, you know, the things that we do to shape it um, ourselves in our roles every day. So Drew, how about you um, You tell us about the methodology and, and your views on how it was done? 
Yeah, okay, so th this is the point where I need to get a little bit critical. The study calls itself case study research, axon research, and a quasi-experiment. And those are three totally different things with totally different methods and standards of evidence. And it doesn't really fit any of the labels properly. Uh, what it is, is it's a before and after study. Sometimes for jargon, we call that a pre and post evaluation. You measure, you do something, you measure afterwards. Uh, the goal in the research, so the research question, was to see whether the safety team could improve safety culture by creating more and better safety interactions with the shop floor. So it's like a two-step process. You step one, you create the better interactions, and then step two, those interactions lead to safety improvements. You know, the idea is that having a active and visible safety team is going to generally lift the idea that safety matters, is important, that people genuinely care about safety, and that's going to create a better safety culture, get things done. They did the study in a Danish industrial plant, and the study was prompted by the fact that the plant had had some fairly serious problems. So they definitely needed to do something to improve safety. They did the study over a good amount of time. You don't expect a safety culture intervention to lead to change over two weeks or two months. So they did their before and after measurements 23 months apart. And they whole, had a whole package of things that they measured. Uh, they had a safety climate questionnaire with more than 270 people answering it. They had a small number of focus groups, a lot of document analysis, and the researcher sitting in on a lot of the safety committee meetings to see what was going on. And they also collected data about safety interactions. So they asked people who they were talking to, what they were talking about, and they were treating this fairly quantitatively, basically just trying to measure the number of times that people had conversations that involved safety as one of the topics of that conversation. So there's some good things here and there's some real problems. Um, the first good thing is that they measured a baseline before they started trying to improve things. That's really important because otherwise there's nothing to compare to. If you don't measure beforehand, then you don't know whether your scores afterwards are any good or not. And the second really good thing is that they measured the mechanism. They were trying to improve safety by first improving how active their safety team was and how interactive everyone was about safety. So they made sure to measure those things, not just the inputs and outputs for safety. And spoiler alert, it's really good that they had those measurements because on measures like injury rate, you don't really expect to see a change from this sort of study. And that's what they found here. So having that baseline measurement and measuring the mechanism is important, not just for research work, but for any sort of program evaluation. Dave, you've spent time in big organisations trying to improve safety. How common is it to remember to actually get baseline measurements and to have like defined before and after measurements when you try to make changes? Yeah, look, I think it's 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 very rare in organisations to do baseline measurement. I think we see it a little bit in in our work in human resources around employee engagement. I think when people are trying to understand a problem and trying to get trying to get a baseline, maybe the first time companies do their safety climate or safety culture work, they could treat that as a baseline. But having the discipline of designing a program where where an organization would intentionally say, over the next two years, we want to achieve X. And to do that, this is what we are going to measure now to know that in two or three years time that we 
have changed or improved or or done what we want is uh, is in my experience quite rare, Drew. Yeah, and I think one of the things that makes it hard and that they got right here is that it means delaying the start of the intervention. For the first month, they didn't actually do any change. That's why the measurements are over 23 months rather than you know, a nice round two years, because they spent a month just collecting the data for that baseline. Your new CEO itching to improve safety, but they took the time to measure before they started intervening so that they knew whether the intervention was working or not. If this was a real quasi-experiment, though, they would have had a control group that didn't receive the intervention. That's the other big thing that you need in an experiment to know whether all of this quantitative data is making a difference. And that's one of the downsides of getting just too quantitative is you focus on things that you can count. And in order to understand things that you can count, you need to have something to compare it to. So for example, they counted the number of separate issues discussed at safety meetings, but that's something that they were trying to directly manipulate. And they also counted a lot of self-reported measurements, like people telling the researcher how often they'd had a conversation about safety. And you never really know with just a single site where you're doing that, whether those numbers are going up or down naturally or because of the intervention, or just because the researchers are present. And so that's why a good experiment really needs a control. Of course, given that the whole point of this is that we're dealing with a factory that was in safety trouble and had a whole bunch of violations given to them by the regulator, it would have been pretty unethical to set up a genuine control group here. You know, a control would have meant a factory where, that had the same problems, but you didn't try to fix it. So that's a good reason this shouldn't have been a quantitative experiment in the first place. It really should have been a proper qualitative case study or properly designed action research. So that, that's just me as a research methods lecturer making complaints about this. It's really tempting to reduce safety to measurable indicators like this, but you make all sorts of sacrifices. Um, if someone told me, yeah, hey, we've got a great new safety intervention, we're going to make our safety committee much more active and effective, then I don't think just measuring the interactivity would have been enough. You're basically saying, you know, step one, improve the safety committee. Step two, everyone communicates more. Step three, dot, dot, dot. Step four, all of our safety scores go up. And I really want to know what step three is. I want to know what they changed on the shop floor. What was the increased safety? What did this look like? What were people doing differently? What were the issues that were fixed? And so that's why a genuine mixed method study where you investigate and talk about those qualitative things happen. You're talking about what actually happened to workers in the factory, not just what changed on the survey. Uh, but that's enough griping from me. Um, tell us about the actual intervention, David, because this is pretty good. Yeah, so what they, what they did over, over just short of two years, like you said, Drew, is, is a whole range of, of interventions or, or safety improvements, if you like, in, in this sort of space around, around climate and communication and, and worker involvement that, would, that should feel very familiar to, to all of our listeners. The safety team focused on performing more and better safety interactions with the shop floor. So what they what they did is they started with a with a health and safety committee, and, and like you said, Drew, we've got to remember that this site, I think its lost time injury frequency rate was almost forty at the start of the study period. There was a dozen or so notices from the regulator. There was a change in CEO, and so we can all form a view of the the, the starting point, the operational starting point of this organisation. And so they took the existing health and safety committee and they immediately doubled the number of shop floor representatives. They moved it to happen every month. They added an external safety consultant because they believed that the internal safety team didn't have 
the requisite safety knowledge to actually provide the meaningful advice on safety issues that were raised in that in that committee. So yeah, they they, they immediately changed um, that that communication and issue resolution mechanism. They did a whole raft of things to increase communication. They they put notice boards all around the, the workplace. They put safety messages in the company newsletters. They provided messaging for the new CEO who was apparently really passionate about safety. They prepared additional safety communication for for distribution. They managers, production managers and supervisors incorporated safety discussions in in every one of their their regular meetings, which which they hadn't previously. And so then the safety team also developed these proactive goals goals for how they were going to lead improvement. So rather just than just being reactive every day, each member of the safety team had specific projects or activities that they were personally leading and 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 implementing, which shifted them from being sort of reactive to to proactive. So many of these things are things that we would commonly see in in organizational safety programs the real the real challenge with with the the intervention is they did so much and there were so many other things going on in this workplace over the study period and so many other factors with with organizational change that while they did all of this stuff and and we'll talk soon about the findings which to again spoil it yeah safety climate um, improved based on the measurement that they were doing it's really hard to know which of all these different interventions that they were doing had what type of effect on, on like you said, Drew, the, the shop floor activities or the worker perceptions about the organisation and safety. So, so Drew, do you want to talk specifically about the findings and or, or any other thoughts um, on what, what they did during the intervention? Yeah, sure. So that, that's a fundamental limitation of this sort of research is when you've only got one example that you're working off. It really doesn't matter how sophisticated your measurement or your quantitative analysis is. You can't say what it was that caused any change that you saw. So one really good thing they did, and this is, I think, pretty important, is they didn't make the classic mistake that organisations make of saying, here's the injury rate before the intervention, here's the injury rate after the intervention, it went down, It must have been the intervention was great. They did a proper trend analysis on the data over several years. And what that analysis showed was that even though there was a decrease in injuries, this was indistinguishable from just continuation of normal trends. So I think they get full marks and a lot of kudos for the bravery in just saying that upfront and clearly. It's so easy for researchers to say something like, even though it wasn't statistically significant, the injuries decreased. And you just shouldn't do that. You know, that's like saying the radio was playing white noise, but if you listened really, really closely, you could hear the yellow submarine play backwards. The whole point of statistical testing isn't that it tells you what's real or not real, but it does tell you what's indistinguishable from noise. So statistical testing has been criticised a lot, particularly recently in psychology. But if you're going to do it at all, you've got to stand by it. So in this study, the researchers stated honestly that any change in the injury data was buried by the noise. That's an honest and it's a fair thing to say. And I think it's the actual conclusion you're going to get from any study that's just a single site. But there's some things that the data did show. David, you're looking to jump in? I I think that's been, you know, Drew, I've sort of transitioned from, from solely being a practitioner for most of my career to 
to, to involved in in research over over the last four or five years, and that was that's probably the biggest uh, lesson for me, um, and maybe for some of our listeners out of this study, because the the data did actually show that that safety incidents decreased by by more than thirty percent um, over the two year study period. So from like I said earlier, an LTIFR of of forty down to twenty four or or thereabouts, and that would be so easy and, and so obvious for safety practitioners and their organisations to to claim victory over their two year intervention with a with a one third reduction in in lost time injuries. And I think many practitioners and organisations will claim success with with, with far less uh, reduction in rates. But yeah, after after the the statistical testing and the long term trend analysis, that they could have done nothing and had. The same, or even even greater reduction in incidents, just based on the the moving trends and and the variability in in the year year's performance. So that's that's a real lesson for organisations. Think about we know we need to think about what we measure outside of injury rates, and and this just shows clearly that it would be very easy for this company to think it's improving safety when it may not actually be um, improving safety. So so in and around the injury rates, um, what they actually looked at closely was issue resolution and. And this was mainly through the Health and Safety Committee. And, and the three years prior to the intervention, they the Health and Safety Committee worked on and resolved approximately 20 safety issues every year. In the first year of, of the intervention, the committee resolved 62. And then in the in the second year, the committee re- resolved 115 issues. Now, part of this was the frequency of, of the meetings and the people involved and so on. But you can see how that increase in the raising and resolution of safety issues could have an impact on climate scores. And then the climate scores specifically significantly increased where workers reported they were getting more feedback about safety, they were feeling more involved in safety, and they were receiving improved safety in instruction. And then finally, Drew, they they, they reported a 50% increase in safety interactions during the study period, which is the meetings and and the conversations that that people were having in relation to safety, and interestingly for me in in this um, result is that something like ninety percent of those reported safety interactions were just between two people. So so manager and worker, for example, or safety professional and worker, which which goes to show the importance of that that close and personal potentially the importance of that close and personal communication that happens every day between two people in a workplace around safety. Yeah, I, th- I think that's a harder number to manipulate as well. It's one thing to schedule a meeting every week that everyone goes along to. You can easily drive up your number of times people talk about safety by having that formal thing. Or you could drive the number up by saying safety has to be an item in every meeting that we have. I, I think the fact that as well as the stuff that they were deliberately changing in the safety committee, they got increases in all of these one-on-one personal interactions which were not something they had a policy about. They didn't have a safety conversations process or were counting that as a KPI. That was just a thing that naturally increased as a result of all the other things that they're doing. Yeah, so I think I think the bottom line here, I think from all of that discussion about the the intervention and, and all of those findings, I think I think the bottom line here is that we can say that safety probably did get better at this site. Although we're not claiming it through injury rates, we we understand the limitations of the climate and all of the interventions. And that maybe doesn't surprise the listeners either, judging by the things that, that they were doing over this two-year period. At the very least, they fixed a whole number of outstanding issues that we that we saw in those numbers of, of, of things that were identified and, and resolved through the committee. And they obviously had to respond to all those regulator violations and, and there was a new CEO who was quite passionate about safety. So 
I think we'd say that safety got better on this site, but from the study, it, it's really hard to know how how big that change really was, and and what were the key the the key specific things that contributed to that change. And that's important if you want to take this away and do that somewhere else. You know, it's one thing to say, "Hey, this was a success here. Aren't we great?" But how do you know what to learn from that? You ultimately, the success or failure comes from this set of numbers that they've measured. And there's too many things going on that could explain the changes. There was a new CEO. So do you say, okay, this study proves that changes in CEOs improve safety. There was a regulator breathing down their necks. There were two changes in safety manager during the study. Uh, We know nothing about the equipment or the work and how that might have changed because they didn't really investigate or discuss that in the study. It's also a little bit hard to interpret exactly what it was that changed. Your safety culture scores increased, but was that just because people saw that the committee was more active? Or was it because they thought that the new CEO genuinely had safety as a priority? Or you know, maybe it's because in the background and not reported by the measurements, all the equipment violations got fixed and that made people genuinely safer. So they reported a more positive safety climate. So, you know, is it fair to say that this is a success story? Is it fair to say that safety climate gets better if you train people to talk about safety more? We don't really know the answer to that. And that makes it hard to know what to take away. But I think there are some things that we can practically learn from this. So, you, David, what do you think it means? Yeah, I think so. I think practically, as, as you go through all of all of the limitations in the way that the research was done, and I think this is a bit of, I think the research is, eyes bigger than their stomachs in a sense of they were trying to measure everything and they were trying to do everything and then they were trying to find answers for everything all all at once. But I came up with four takeaways that I thought were were really useful for practitioners and their organizations that are that are trying to improve improve safety climate through the role of the safety organization. The first is shop floor engagement. So I think safety professionals have increasingly moved their roles away from having frequent and effective shop floor interaction. Because we've we've seen this as the role of supervisors. It, it, we've seen it as not the safety professional's role to do direct shop floor engagement. We influence line managers and work with line managers, and then they work with their people on the ground. And I think that really limits our, as safety practitioners, our understanding of the operational context of the organization. It, under, it limits our real-time risk information, and it limits our ability to positively impact the understanding and perception of safety amongst the frontline workforce. So I really think that safe professionals should prioritize time on the front line, listening, communicating and and following up. I think the second the second takeaway for me was issue resolution. And in this space, you know, actions speak louder than words. So if the safety team, safety practitioner has an action, then it should be done well and it should be done on time. I think all too often the safety team and safety practitioners are really busy and timeframes slip and if the safety team isn't isn't diligently following up and resolving safety issues, then it's hard to expect other people in the organisation to to do what um, what we'd like them to do for for safety as well. So, you know, it can be tempting in this space for safety teams to fall back on hazard reporting systems and and managing the process. But I'd encourage all safety teams to really closely watch your hazard reporting and observation system. Know what's going in there. Know who it's going to, and know that it's know that it's getting done. Because it appears from this study that issue resolution, you know, can play a big role in in worker perception of of safety climate. The third I had drew was about role modelling, um, and and this has been a reflection for me um, at various points over over the last couple of years. But 
how do we as safety professionals role model our safety interactions through the processes that we're involved in, safety meetings, incident investigations, safety audits? You know, I get involved in a lot of conversations with safety practitioners where we're, we're judging and blaming or, or, some, or managers for what they're not doing about safety. But then at the same time, we then expect managers not to criticise or blame their workers for having accidents. And I really think it's important that you know, safety professionals pay a lot of attention to the interaction behaviours that they're role modelling within their organisation. Um, and finally, finally, Joe, I thought um, being proactive. So this safety organisation went from just reacting to what was coming up on a day-to-day basis to actually setting clear goals and improvement programs that they were they were working through the safety committee, but but with people on the shop floor and with managers to to get fixed. And and we've seen this a little bit in, in a lot of safety teams about them not having the space and the time to be proactive about safety. And I think that's really important. So so that'd be my four my four Drew. Um, shop floor engagement, issue resolution, role modeling and being proactive. Yeah, no, I think those are fair takeaways. I'll I'll throw in a sneaky number five, which is that I think it's important to think about the change that you're trying to make in the organization and always use that as the basis for measurements. For all its faults, this model of measure, change, measure is far superior to just annual tracking of statistics. One good use of the safety climate as a metaphor is just to remember that injury rates are like the weather. They go up and down all the time. It's the climate that we care about, the consistent things that we're trying to work to improve. So think about the long-term difference that you want to make as a safety professional, uh, whether you would like to see issues getting resolved, whether you want to see a more interactive organisation, whether you want to see an organisation where safety committee is a prestigious committee to get onto, measure what it is now, work to improve it, measure again afterwards. It's not a bad model. I, I think we can agree to disagree maybe about whether we think this study has shown that safety teams do impact safety climate. But I I think the study has definitely shown that evaluating safety interventions can be really hard. And it's given some useful things to think about, about what types of things should go into an intervention and how you might manage a package of measures like they have here to really work at improving one aspect of the organisation. Yeah, I like that, Drew. I like how you talked about that one aspect. I think it's so tempting for practitioners and organisations to say, we want to improve safety culture. Okay, great. Most of the academic researchers don't agree exactly how to define it and and what makes up the safety culture. But I really like the way that you then said, what are the specific aspects of your organisational safety climate or or culture that you're trying to improve and be as specific as you can be, and then find a way to to measure and intervene around that. And uh, just as a preempt for for next week, we're we're actually going to do that ourselves. And we'll, we'll, we'll go into, you know, the specific issue of trust, which is sort of part of climate and culture. But, you know, we're taking our own advice there where we're going into next week and, and being more specific than we've been this week around you know, a particular mechanism for, for improving safety. Yeah, um, but that's that for this week anyway. We hope you found this episode thought-provoking and ultimately useful in shaping the safety of work in your own organisation. Please send any comments, questions, or ideas for future episodes to feedback at safetyofwork.com.